Welcome to the Master of Divinity podcast, episode 22. Thank you for joining me. If you're listening in sequence, you will know that we are in our first intensive course called Misunderstood Christianity. Last week, we looked at Imperial Rome and the Emperor Constantine, and this week we will seamlessly transition into the post-Roman period, specifically in Britain. We're calling this episode The Dark Ages. Before we consider the so-called Dark Ages, we should situate the age within the context of the last 10,000 years of British history, that's ambition. Uh, I'm focusing on the history of Britain because most Protestant traditions find their beginning there, and because the Dark Ages in Britain were anything but. After we've set the context, we'll look at missionary efforts in the Anglo-Saxon period, and some of the most famous Dark Age Britons, including Cadman, Aidan, and Hilda, among others. So let's begin at the beginning. The ice has melted, but the land bridge remains. Some of my ancestors leave that Parisian cafe near the Seine, cross the land bridge, and become Stone Age Britons. My family's long march to Muddy York, meaning Toronto, has begun and will take us through the following eras. The Stone Age, about 8,000 to 2,500 BCE. The Bronze Age, 2,500 to 800 BCE. The Iron Age, 800 BCE to 43 CE. Roman Britain, 43 to 410 Anglo-Saxon Britain, 410 to 1066, the Viking Age, 793 to 1042, the Norman Period, 1066 to 1485, the Tudor Period, 1485 to 1603, the Stuarts, 1603 to 1707, and modern Britain, 1707 to present, or 1714, if you're a fan of all the kings named George. So where are the Dark Ages on this list? It depends who you ask. Plus, historians no longer use the term for at least a couple of reasons. The first is the use of light versus dark to connote learning and civilization. Academics, uh, usually of the post-colonial kind, are quick to point out that using dark for bad and light for good is just not cool. Second, the stereotype of a complete breakdown of civil society that the term Dark Ages would seem to indicate really didn't happen. The idea that the departure of the Romans in 410 and their retreat across Europe thrust everyone into a chaotic nightmare is not supported by the evidence. Yes, the use of currency seems to have come to an end, and people switched to leather rather than lead cups, but many things continued, particularly trade. So why all this talk about the Dark Ages? Partly, it would seem because written records cease, at least until we meet our friend Bede, and because Anglo-Saxons didn't build in stone for much of the period. 
Fans of the show Time Team uh, will know that finding a shadow of a post hole in the ground to indicate a dwelling or a mead hall is far less engaging than finding a tile mosaic or a Latin inscription in stone. So the Dark Ages means less written history and less evidence in the ground concerning the daily lives of the people. But before we get too deep into the weeds, perhaps a thumbnail sketch of the Anglo-Saxon period, a more palatable description for the era. Historians generally say 410, departure of the Roman legions, to 1066, the Norman Conquest. Uh, We'll go with that for now, understanding that we can't do a proper job of recounting 650 years of history in the time allowed. The period begins, as I noted, with the departure of the legions. They were needed elsewhere, and the Romano-British people were now on their own. Bede tells us that someone got the bright idea to hire mercenaries from the continent, namely Angles, Saxons, and Jutes. I think you can imagine what happens next. While the newcomers were busy defending the Romano-British, they were also having a good look around at this green and pleasant land. Soon families were arriving from across the channel, and tensions grew. Soon there was open conflict, and sometime around 500 there was notable success in challenging the newcomers, but it was not to last. As a side note, this uh, period of conflict seems to give rise to the legends of Arthur, so important in the realm of English self-identity. Nevertheless, by 650, the land was largely controlled by the Anglo-Saxons. The Jutes are still around, but somehow they didn't get a spot in the title. Uh, This leads to the emergence of a number of independent kingdoms, which rise and fall in importance as the era continues. I should note that some Romano-British were not assimilated by the Anglo-Saxons, but retreated to Wales and Cornwall to be conquered later. Late in the 8th century, the Viking Age begins, first at Lindisfarne, we'll, we'll hear Uh, more about uh, that later, and and then throughout the north and the eastern Midlands. Fans of Alfred the Great will tell you that the flame of Anglo-Saxon England was nearly extinguished until Alfred was able to fight his way out of a small corner of what remained of Wessex and retake much of the south of England. Were it not for Alfred, this podcast would likely be in some form of Danish, and I would be praising Guthrum uh, among the greats of Valhalla. The work, of course, was not done. Alfred made peace with the Danes, allowing them to remain in an area called the Danelaw, knowing full well that conflict would resume. It soon fell to his son and successor in Wessex, Edward, and his daughter, Athelflaed, to finish the job. I would encourage you to Google Athelflaed, or her title, the Lady of the Mercians, uh, to learn about this remarkable leader. I'll stop my summary here and the years that take us to 1066, but it's also worth a Google, especially uh, King Canute, and Edward the Confessor. So that's the politics of the time. What about religion? 
We know that there were many Christians in Roman Britain, with the best evidence that three bishops crossed the channel to attend the Council of Arles in 314. This indicates considerable organization and direction from Rome. Despite this, the early Anglo-Saxon period sees the disappearance of Christianity in Britain and the ascendancy of paganism. The story of the reintroduction of Christianity to Britain happens from two directions, beginning first from the south. The marriage between pagan Athelbert of Kent and the Frankish princess Bertha in 588 is significant. Bertha is Christian and obviously begins to work on Athelbert, who allows a Roman effort to convert the population of Kent. Bede shares a lovely story about this effort, which may or may not be true, but it requires telling. According to Bede, uh, Pope Gregory, the, the Gregorian chant guy, is walking through a slave market in Rome and sees some fair-haired slaves and immediately asks, where are they from? The response, they are Angles, my lord, from the island of Britain. Uh, clever Gregory says, Angles, you say? They look like angels to me. Nevertheless, uh, Gregory sponsors a mission to the land of the Angles soon after. He sent the future St. Augustine, uh, that's the other St. Augustine, not to be confused with St. Augustine of Hippo. Meanwhile, in the north, Irish monks have been keeping the flame of faith alive since the time of the great Patrick, and have begun their own missionary effort. It begins with St. Columba, who founded a monastery on the Scottish island of Iona, along with twelve companions. Iona becomes a center of learning and missionary activity, and later the home of Prince Oswald of Northumbria, who embraces the Christian faith. Eventually, Oswald returns home and gains the throne of Northumbria, then invites the monks of Iona to send a missionary to help spread the faith in his kingdom. The first missionary bishop to arrive is named Corman, uh, but he's sent packing for being too harsh with the pagan Northumbrians. That's Corman, not Coyman. He's no relation of mine. Back home at Iona, a bright spark named Aidan is critical of Corman, uh, so he's sent to take his place. Bishop Aidan is a great success, uh, leading the conver conversion of Northumbria. Bede can't say enough about Aidan, eschewing his horse to walk among the common people, generous in giving alms, in educating orphans, and buying the freedom of slaves. Some regard him as the best saint to represent all of the United Kingdom, Irish roots, Scottish formation, and a leading light in northern England. Can you tell that I'm an Aidan superfan? The base for Aidan's work is the holy island of Lindisfarne, also known, spoiler alert, as Holy Island. Situated within sight of the castle at Bamborough, the seat of the Northumbrian king, it played an outsized role in the effort to bring Northumbrians to the faith. And of course, you can't mention Lindisfarne without mentioning St. Cuthbert, the most popular English saint before the martyrdom of Thomas Becket. Alfred the Great was encouraged by a vision of Cuthbert and encouraged his veneration throughout England. 
Cuthbert's also associated with miracle stories, from his unique relationship with otters and ravens to his casket evading the Vikings to find a final resting place at Durham. Uh, Check the website, p2.ca slash podcast, for links to some more Cuthbert information. Another Google-worthy saint is St. Hilda, also known as Hild, abbess of Whitby and counselor to Anglo-Saxon royal houses. She's also the bridge between the Roman Church from the south and the Celtic Church coming from the north. She is great-niece of King Edwin of Daria, half of future Northumbria, but growing up pagan in the royal court. Edwin married Athelbur, daughter of King Athelbert of Kent, a Christian, and eventually the whole court was baptized, including 13-year-old Hilda. I can't understand why people don't name their children Athelbur, Athelbert, or Athelflad, such strong names. Bede is a bit vague about Hilda's early years, so we assume that she took vows and became a nun in Kent. At age 33, she was sent to join her sister in a convent in Gaul, but went instead to the north at the invitation of St. Aidan. Aidan appointed her abbess of Hartlepool and then Whitby. Whitby was a double monastery with monks and nuns under the rule of Hilda. Bede speaks at length about Whitby and the community Hilda developed. Known for their charity and work for peace, Bede also notes that they lived like the first Christians, where no one there was rich and none poor, for they had all things in common. Perhaps the clearest sign of her stature is her role hosting the Synod of Whitby in 664, the meeting that decided whether the Church of England would follow the practices of the Roman Church or the Celtic Church. The leading issue was how the date of Easter was to be determined, since the North and the South often marked the resurrection on different dates. The South prevailed, and with it another step in forging a unified England. So, to review, uh, we've met uh, St. Columba, St. Oswald, St. Aidan, St. Hilda, St. Cuthbert, and St. Bede. And now, for something completely different, another northern saint, but with a twist. This saint wrote the first poem in our language, sort of. I want to introduce you to Cademan, spelt C-A-E-D-M-O-N, our first poet. Uh, But before I do, we should hear the poem itself. So imagine a fire in the center of the mead hall, some mead in your leather cup, and Cademan sharing his poem. Nu shulan herian, heofun riches werd, meatidus mechte, and his mud ye thunk. Werk, wulder father, swahe wundrige ways, richten, or unstelde. He erst shop er von Bernum, helfen to hrofa, halig shippend, tha midanjerd, monkines werd, richten, after theoda, firum foldan, freya elmichtig. 
Thanks to Kara Schallenberg reading in the West Saxon dialect and placing her recording in the public domain. Now, if your old English is as rusty as mine, then Cadman's lovely poem is lost in translation. Luckily, we're uh, traveling with the internet, so Wikipedia provides a translation, as does the fifth edition of the Norton Anthology. He writes, Now we must honor the guardian of heaven, the might of the architect and his purpose, the work of the Father of glory, as he, the eternal Lord, established the beginning of wonders. He first created the children of men, heaven as a roof, the holy creator, then the guardian of mankind, the eternal Lord, afterward appointed the middle earth, the lands for men, the Lord Almighty. Yes, Hobbit fans, the same Middle Earth uh, by which Tolkien meant the earth inhabited by humans, which I expect he meant Oxford and maybe the Shire around it. So, Cademan's birth year is unknown, but he died sometime between 670 and 680, a contemporary of St. Hilda at Whitby. Uh, he is described as uh, an illiterate farmer and a laborer in the monastery, but this is Whitby, so he's given a place in the circle. According to Bede, Cademan was sitting around the aforementioned hearth with the monks at Whitby, who were drinking and singing and passing the harp around the room. When it was passed to Cademan, he fled the room in shame, for he could not play and he could not sing. That night, in a dream, an angel visited him and asked him to explain himself. I cannot sing, and therefore I left the feast, he said. The visitor then said, Sing to me, then, and sing a song of creation. At that moment, he began to sing verses that surprised him and led him to share his story the following morning. Hilda and the others, hearing the story and the song, declared it a divine gift and celebrated Cademan became a monk shortly thereafter and continued to write, earning the distinction of being the first English poet. To conclude, I want to travel to Jarrow, the birthplace and lifelong home of St. Bede, or the Venerable Bede, as he is widely known. He writes the first history of Britain and becomes the source of much of what we know about the early Anglo-Saxon period. Just as an aside, I've been to Jarrow on a couple of occasions uh, to see Bede's church and a delightful attraction called Jarrow Hall, which includes the Bede Museum and the Living History Farm. You can see a reconstructed Mead Hall and some delightful farm animals pretending, I suppose, to be Anglo-Saxon farm animals. Jarrow uh, is part of a twin monastic foundation uh, called Monk Merwith. Uh, Jarrow, between the rivers Tyne and Ware in Northumbria, founded in the 670s. Uh, by the time Bede joins the community at age seven, it's already developing as a center of learning for the surrounding region. Under the supervision of St. Cholfrid, uh, Bede becomes acquainted with classical Greek writers such as Horace and Virgil. He learns Hebrew he begins to write on a variety of topics, including science, music, theology, and, of course, history. 
His book, An Ecclesiastical History of the English People, is the most important of the several books that he wrote. Jarrow also produced a highly accurate reproduction of St. Jerome's Latin Vulgate, translation of the Bible. Three copies of the book were produced with the intention that one would be presented to the Pope. Sadly, uh, Colfred died en route to Italy, and the Codex remained in Tuscany until the 18th century when it was acquired by the library in Florence. Poetry, science, classical translation, art, travel, religious foundations, learning, all these point to an advancing society that hardly fits the stereotype of the Dark Ages. Yes, the Vikings do all they can to wreck things, but they too will eventually settle down and convert to Christianity or shove off to Iceland or Newfoundland. So that's all for today. Next time we're going to look at the years leading up to the Reformation and some of the people who deserve credit for setting the table, as it were. Thank you for joining me.